This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the latest installment of our Not One Step Back reading series, we look at a piece by Jairus Banaji titled Modes of Production in a Materialist Conception of History. Before we go into this, and I know we should dive into the text, but you have a – do you want to, like, voc- like announce to the audience your selfhood changes? Yeah, for- yeah, absolutely. Um, this isn't even the first name change we've had mid-swamp side, so I'm, like, I'm happy to participate in a grand tradition. Um, so you've known me as Lexi for – you know, literally years, which is something to think about. But um, Lexi has always been like a pseudonym to me. It was derived from Alexandra Kollontai. It was just sort of something I was using as a placeholder. And so people wouldn't call me bro on left book. And also so I didn't give my real name to people on left book. Um, But I've actually kind of like circled around to something that I want to be part of my name, like for real. And I'm going to use that as my call sign or what have you. Like, because I realize, like, now, you know, Grant and Jake, you're using your real names, no gimmicks. I was the only I mean, person that, that had, like, a fake name. Last one, my last name is fake. I was, well, I was I fake your, last your name. Your last name is fake. I'm never giving these people my last name, even, even the yeah. subscribers. I mean, I, I love you, patrons, but. I should please. pick a new last name. Because, like, I'm basically just... I mean, Vegas Verso books is... A, I, I maybe went through more of a you know, Verso phase, but maybe I've come I mean, around on that. Listen, if, if you want to come do bumps at the loft with us, I mean, Jake Verso is really going to come in handy. Yeah. You know? I, and I, th- I think we could have a nice gender moment, part three, part four, whatever it is on this podcast by now, where Jake announces, like, a new, more uh, more fitting last name so just start thinking of a new one although if they, yeah. Yeah, although if they didn't let me into the loft i think i could pull out like do you know who my father is you know to more effect, <laughs> like, my, my, my father is john verso <laughs> yeah 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 no i i don't think anybody um i mean i don't even know do we we don't promote you with verso you know like that's, that's just like left book stuff and you know what our podcast has transcended left book and become its own phenomenon for now some reason now it's discord yeah, Which is yeah now, now we're on now we're trapped in a different social medium yeah um, it's like so, you, you could see what we play for for video games yeah that's right uh sorry did i step on your thing by the way i don't mean <laughs> nah, like you, was there more okay i said we need to shoot the shit more and i'm very very happy with how so this is you, going have you said the name yet no i haven't no i haven't and so without further ado i just wanted to give you my my reasoning first is that like I was always looking for, and this has actually been a lifelong thing. I never felt like my first name was particularly gendered, even though other people disagree. I don't care. I've always loved my first name. Not going to change it. Um, but my middle name, my middle name uh, is Michael. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a very gendered name. Never liked which it. Is, which is also my middle name. I know that. So no offense, but 
you, you know how it'd be. Like, for a long... T- so, like, my trans narrative, right? You know, ever since I was a little squish, I never fucking liked my middle name. It was too normy. It was super gendered. And yes, I, th- I thought in those terms when I was younger. And I always wanted to change it, but I didn't know to what. And over the years, I, I came up with, like, two criteria. One, I want it to be kind of, like, sci-fi, give me a sense of the future... Because, like, I never really felt like I belonged in the world feeling like I did. But instead of making that, you know, like, an existential sickness, it made me feel like I was from the future or something. So that's cool. I like the future. And then, secondly, I really didn't want to pick something, like, super, you know, with, like, Jesus-y roots. I'm gonna name you Jesus Ezekiel Jesus. And that's from the Bible. Like, I wanted to evade Christian culture. And that was my sort of Jewish resentment thing. So, uh, as I'm watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, you find out that one of the Dax, uh, like, one of the Dax hosts is named Ezri. And Ezri is a nice Jewish name, which means my help. But God, like, I love it. And I and I also love that character. Um, so... I settled on Esri. So Lexi was my previous host, right? Hi, I'm Esri. So what's it mean again? <laughs> my help. And okay. I mean, I don't know. So if like, you're, so if, like you're, if I'm moving if you, and like you don't show up to, you know. I'm sorry, Jake. Did you name your namesake. me? <laughs> Did you name me? Because if you see, that's the thing. That's the thing in, in like uh, conservative cultures. Like, in, I don't know, like. Because think of it this way, right? Like, Esri is a traditional Jewish name. So there's probably a million, like, trad wives named Esri. But hmm. the point is, like, my parents didn't name me Esri, you know? Not even God himself named me Esri. I named me Esri. So who's my help? I'm helping me. Fuck you. You could pay movers, Jake. <laughs> All right. I, uh... I've had some fun names in the past. I've had some fun names. Baby, you should bust them out. I mean, like you know, YOLO. <laughs> I had a very, I had a very generic trans name at one point. Um, but you know, this is the thing: trans people just, they're just like, hmm, what, what, what month am I thinking of? May, June, July. I probably just named the top three trans names. Well, like, if you were to run with one of those names, let's say, like, it would probably start as, you know, something, I don't know, it, it could be much like my Lexi story, where it's just something you staple onto yourself so people stop calling you dude, and then next thing you know, the people, you know, in your life that, like, you, you talk to the most are calling you Lexi, or, or, or something, or, you know, your partner calls you, like, Lexi during sex, and you're like, hey, that's a, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and like you know you start having this like intimate relationship with something that you just sort of threw on yourself for I, you know I don't know like just cause it was there you know and um, then another thing you can do is intervene in this process if you think your name's too basic so you know instead of having a basic white girl name after some bullshit I'm naming myself after a Star Trek character with a nice Hebrew name so Thank you there you go. Much. There you go. Well, if I 
Thank you for thank you for injecting soy into my veins live on air. <laughs> That's but yeah, Im- impossible impossible whoppers for everyone. I got another name. Uh, I think that we should talk about uh, Jairus Banaji. Ah, yeah, nice transition, J- Jake. Yeah, Jairus Banaji. Uh, this is, I guess, the latest installment of our endless ongoing series. Not one step back. Um, we so- where we are your pay pig. <laughs> I think it might be the other way around. Oh, ooh, you're you're right. I but shouldn't point we'll fi- that out. We'll, we'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> um, so we basically we read a chapter uh, of a larger book. Uh, the, what was the book called again? I don't have it in front of me. Theory as history. Theory as history. This is a you know it's uh, theory as history is a tome that I tried to read like way before I had the context for it, and I had some reading in historical materialism, like <clears throat> some like you know unorthodox reading of historical materialism, and like almost enough background to engage with it, but not enough <laughs> because when you read this, you might be able to understand everything, but you might not be sure what's at stake. Yeah, and it's you know he definitely he he at least in this chapter or essay or whatever we're calling it here, he definitely learns from the master in that he like front loads the abstract stuff before getting into like you know this the determinate historical examples. Uh, we should mention, um, and it is this. Excuse me. This did start off as an article, and that book theory as history is, I think, just a collection of his articles. Oh, okay. if you go, if you go onto uh, the Amazon page to go buy theory as history, <laughs> um, it's a fucking million dollars. And if you scroll down to the comments section, you'll see the m- voted most helpful comment is by friend of the show C. Derek Varn. Um, where he gives it four out of five stars and calls it a necessary clarification of materialist historiography. So if you want to, if you want to read, like I, I scrolled through Derek's uh, opinion of this book, and it is smart. So if you want some extra commentary, if if we're not enough for you for some reason, then go onto the Amazon page for uh, Theory as History. Are you telling me we could have invited Derek on to discuss a book he wrote the top Amazon review for? (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. Somehow, though, I feel like the Amazon star system wasn't really designed to deal with a book like this. You know, like how do you say how do you how do you decide like four and not five or, you know, three and not four with, you know, because it seems like you can do that with like a fiction, but like, yeah, it was kind of boring. You know, three. Like what do you, what do you do with this? You know. Well, it's kind of. Well, I think the four question. out of five is well, like I don't agree with everything in this, but it is a useful contribution to the dialogue, which is actually what I would say. Yeah, or like you know, this is a this is a really groundbreaking and interesting point of view, but also the sentences are like a half paragraph long. <laughs> that I mean, too. but that's like that's 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 par for the course. This shit, though. I mean, come on. Yeah, for sure. Well. The only way to know for sure is to invite Derek to our next Banaji episode. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, but, uh, so we read Modes of Production in a Materialist Conception of History. Uh, this was put to us by at Pen and Screen on Discord. So thank you very much um, for this. You are 
you're the latest Napoleon to uh, be on history on horseback. So thank you very much. This is good too. Cause this, this is a guy who, you know, like I've, I've, I've seen his name around, but I haven't actually got around to sit down and reading. So it's good that somebody picked this, you know, it's, it, it, it had that nice intersection where it's like on my to-do list anyway. His thought is interesting. I looked at some of his other stuff. He's, you know, he seems to be, he seems to hop across different like disciplines, and part of the, the he basically explains the reason he does that is because that's something that Marx kind of does by necessity, given the object of what he's studying. Because you know, capitalism, like it's he's basically analyzing like society as a totality. So you know, you're basically going to dip into everything because it's all integrated. You know, and maybe this gets in a little bit into what he's talking about here, but you know, if just talking about like Marx's method, particularly again, capital, right? Like he, he abstracts in order to understand like certain structural tendencies underpinning the system. But, um, the system as a whole is a complex system. And so you can't really understand it until you've looked at everything, which is of course why Marx never finished his work, his life's work. Right, and right. one and, thing and, that and why the left like, has has rewritten those books a million times. Right, but and one thing that I, I like about kind of Banaji's outlook and about his approach is that he seems to be trying to sort of identify the areas where there was like the research and such hasn't been done, and also examine maybe some of the broader uh, conceptual frameworks that are implied in some of Marx's work that haven't really been considered by others and to try and sort of figure out what kind of like pathways of like research and inquiry and theoretical development are necessary um, in order to, I guess, develop kind of like the Marxist, uh, you know, body of knowledge is the right word, but you know what I'm saying? Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've got Heinrich's uh, introduction to capital um, on my desk right now. And it's like, that's one of the better ones. But what's interesting to me with a lot of Marxist work is that rather than accepting this person that you know so many Marxists claim to follow in the footsteps of Marx's work as being correct enough to work from, there's this constant relitigation of we've got to rewrite capital a million times instead of what if new theory actually t- picked up where this guy left off? You know, I mean, and then, then, so I appreciate what you're saying, Jake, about that. That some of what Banaji is trying to do is to actually carry the work forward, rather than to endlessly kind of let's, you know, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite what Marx said. Well, and the impression yeah, Benaji, I get, Banaji's my, yeah, uh, Banaji's my uh, favorite. Yeah, sure. Banaji's my favorite kind of no, Marxist. Good. Fine, you can go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> How long are you going to no, fucking no, you, argue no, you about go who talks next? No, no, Jesus no, Christ. No, last, no, time, last, time last time I was fucking with you, but okay. No, I'll no, 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 no. I know. It was pretty funny. Uh, Banaji's my favorite kind of Marxist in this um, way, in that, like, he is a Marxist in the sense that he's trying to build on Marx's analysis. He's not a Marxist in the sense that he's especially wedded to the way that the tradition actually pans out in the literature. He, for the most part, engages with a lot of Marxist literature to demonstrate 
how badly um, the concepts have been extrapolated. And he would even, you know, point to Marx as saying that, you know, look, sometimes Marx uses mode of production in a way or that might be better suited to call it like technique or something. And that's, you know, like, or, you know, a specific means of uh, extraction. I forget his exact language. But, um, but that's like... But Banaji like ends up drawing more on like he he draws more on the analysis from the political side of Marxism, um, which you know it's pretty rare where someone prefers like Lenin on a on a topic of analysis to Bukharin or something like it's it's pretty rare that like you see Kautsky deployed in theory, in a positive way. Um, well, oh, this sorry. guy is, is kind of like critical and scientific. Like he kind of takes on both of these sides of Marxism in an interesting way. Well, and he does it. I mean, and to be clear, like he does, he engages with the stuff like post-Marx Marxism, like heavily, <laughs> but he isn't maybe, I guess, beholden like, what are you saying exactly? Because I've seen, you know, I've seen him he, talk about other people where he's like, you know, Althusser is terrible on some things, but he's good on others. You know, like he's not. No, no, like he's he's definitely going to be more sympathetic towards Althusser than other like uh, than the people that like simplify modes of production to like one particular kind of labor relation. Um, but in this essay, so much of him recalling specifically Marxist literature trying to develop historical materialism is to show how broken the conversation is and how like badly the conversation goes or whatever insights that these people have, they completely miss something else. And the highest praise that he seems to have for, you know, any writers are a groups of what he calls professional historians <laughs> and that, essentially people just trying to do the best possible economic history end up doing better historical materialism than a lot of consciously historical materialist scholarship. That's like, that's a notion that, I don't know, I think Marxists could appreciate across the board and it has something to do with the intrinsically scientific character of Marxism and Marx's project why that would be the case well and he he seems particularly what a lot of this seems to be attacking is the idea of excuse me the idea of using <laughs> the particular i guess um form of exploitation as characteristic of a mode of production and or as as determinate as a determinant of a mode of production, and then period periodizing history based upon epochs of different modes of production, right? That's that seems to be what he's going after here, and what he's saying is that mode of production should be used to talk about um, social and, and productive relationships, and that those can occur pretty much in any not in any era, but 
because there's variations, obviously, and there's different um, levels of abstraction. These things have to be integrated. And he seems to think that like like mercantile, what he calls like mercantile capitalism. Well, that's a that that's a valid category, and b that like the sector of finance actually kind of determines production a lot more greatly than like a capital centric reading of capital volume one centric reading of Marxism would allow. And so, and maybe maybe I'm I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of things here, but like. Like he, he's basically saying like he he's basically says that like forms of capitalism have pretty much existed in different periods all throughout history, and so you can't like say that the this was the era of feudalism, this was the era of this, uh, this was the era of that. I think what he's saying more is that there have been there's been wage labor as like a simple, as like a simple. I forget exactly what he calls it, but like there's been wage labor before. But not wage labor the way wage labor takes part in capitalism. And the, pr- the presence of wage labor, the, the presence of wage labor as a simple factor by itself uh, does not itself mean that there is capitalism. That capitalism but- refers to certain laws of motion of, of, a, of a greater economy. And but who would who would disagree with that though? Even the people he's arguing against, I don't think would disagree with that. Eh, I I I I I think that there's a lot of people that explicitly, and you know, I've done this recently. You know, I've kind of thought like, you know, what else is there to like capitalism? You know, like or what have you? Like, I guess I don't know. I guess I'm smarter than that. But I'm tempted sometimes to say like. You know, if there's a certain labor relationship that scales up, then that's a mode of production. You know, and that. Oh yeah, no, I think I think we we've all we all well, look at that thing as that way to a certain extent. There. I mean, it's, right? We've all been I, there, I right? guess what I would say is that um, one of the things he highlights, I think, is a key difference between capitalism and feudalism, is that while wage labor takes place in all maybe except for your kind of primitive tribal relations, um, all pre-capitalist modes of production, um, that capitalism interconnected production globally to increasingly be an endeavor taken up by all of society as collective social production, despite the fact that it remains social production divided within and against itself, it's still societal, you know, in an all of society way. Whereas there's an underestimation of market relations in some pre-capitalist societies. And that's, I think what he's, what Banaji is getting at about his opponents is not that they'd even disagree with his point, because when you put his point like that, it sounds so reasonable that of course, wage labor took place in pre-capitalist societies. He's saying, yeah, it did. And most of the people who are in the Marxist tradition underestimate the extent to which that's the case. But, Banaji is also careful to note that these market relations are regional to an extent, and they primarily act to meet the consumptive needs of the feudal political class more so than expansion of market firms, right? These these capitalist firms compelled by capitalism year after year to expand and to grow. Instead, how do we meet the the consumptive needs of the people who are forcibly extracting from peasants and basically treating peasants as if they are instruments of production themselves? 
Well, right. Well, two. Well, two things. One, there was probably wage labor and like primitive, so-called primitive communism. I mean, I don't know. I remember like when I took like community college anthropology class. You know, they showed us that fucking video of like the monkeys like selling bananas for for sex. You know, there's probably there's probably pre-human <laughs> forms of like wage labor. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, well, kern- that, kernels, that. The, this, kernels of wage labor. <clears throat> well, this 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 kind of goes into what is meant by like a simple category versus a historically determinate category. Those were the words I was looking for. So wage labor as a simple category doesn't posit any greater laws of motion of an economy. And I can't help but think of this in a Robert Brenner sort of way where you're thinking about the rules for reproduction of an economic unit. You know, wasn't that the debates that this kind of, emerged out of like what wasn't this like originally published like i would imagine that i would imagine i would imagine that that's the context and it's probably not an accident but i didn't see brenner mentioned here um the thing that really unites them is their line of argument that just doing economic history is going to make you a better marxist than you know figuring out how many angels can fit on the head of a feudal mode of production um to to speak to your point to speak to your point about, you know, like primate wage labor and that sort of thing. Banaji's like main line of attack right up front is something that he associates with political economy. What he calls the transhistorical anthropology of labor. And he feels that Marx's great project was to dissolve the ability for political economy to just project back into forever and just be like, yeah, that's just, you know, how it be with humans, you know? Uh, it's just always been like this. Um, even for something like wage labor, Marx, you know, can take something that, okay, yeah, might have existed with higher order, like primates, you know, even outside of humanity. But wage labor and capitalism for Marx is historically determinate. It's special. It, it takes, it's subject it takes to specific place in a whole laws. different social formation than any other social formation has had with wage labor. Well, it's 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 critical to understand where he's coming down in this greater conversation about science and critique that you get in Marxism with Engels, as you know, as far as Banaji is concerned. Engels leans a little too far into what he sees as an aspect of political economy, you know, the transhistorical anthropology of labor. Um, Banaji feels that what Marx was trying to do was, you know, not eliminate the ability to talk about laws of motions of societies like at all, right? Um, you know, like some somebody like you know, Moisha Postone would say that, you know, the good reading of Marx is to say that only capitalism has like laws of motion and everything else is too diffuse to generalize that way. Right. Um, but Banaji is interested in the Marx that can look at every mode of production as having its own laws of motion. And in order to do analysis on previous modes of production, um, if you're, if you're going to be doing like analysis on history that you need to relativize your categories. You don't just assume that, you know, a labor relationship 
a million years ago is fundamentally the same as it is under capitalism, even if it is the same, you know, relations of exploitation. I mean, wage labor as it appears in feudalism and wage labor as it appears in capitalism is what this essay is really about. Uh, in addition to the way that, you know, slavery can be compatible with capitalism. Well, he, he goes further than that. He says basically like the slavery was capitalism. Like for him, for him, like capitalism, you know, it's self-expanding value. It's MCM prime, you know, it's like, it's the, it's the, and it's, it's this drive to, you know, renew the, like basically make the instruments of, it's basically, it's, uh, sorry, it's relative surplus value is what it is. Like that's what's key. That's what doesn't exist elsewhere. Right. The only the only thing that anyone else can do is lengthen the working day. But according to him, you know, even like these colonial plantations and all these things on the periphery that, you know, I've often described as like semi feudal, those are a part of capitalism, too, because uh, I guess they're basically getting uh, outlays of like financial capital and they're producing for this market. And there is a drive to expand value, even if the systems themselves are incapable of participating directly in in relative surplus value production right yeah because in his hands you know the critique of political economy right where political economy does the trans historical you know like anthropology of labor or whatever there is a positive thing that comes out of this there's still a positive scientific process and still a positive scientific project in you know looking at like those slave plantations and thinking about its political economy, more or less. Like, it's because of the overall, you know, political and economic, like, power and investment situation that he would classify capitalist, uh, he would classify those plantations as capitalist. Like, the re, I mean, the read that he gets is, is really interesting at one point because he sees, he sees the colonization of the world like as actually coming from a crisis of feudalism and you know the spanish that colonized the world are part of a mercantile feudalism you know making reference to the power structure and the incentive structure and he really meant, he's really talking more about the incentive structure and the economics of the situation but i i don't i don't think he would object to extrapolating that you know a lot of this is because of the power structure. He makes enough no nods in that direction that that seems like, you know, he's not just isolating the economics. He's making like a bigger critical political economic point. Um, so, but he does, I think, let's see. I guess one question I had that occurred to me. So if he thinks like, I don't know, I guess like these capitalist dynamics can exist like in in smaller and limited like senses like within other periods of history that we wouldn't describe as capitalist like could he say the same thing about like communist social relations you know could they could they already exist like in embryo like in different contexts that would then just have to gradually i guess like dynamically you know eventually get to the point where they expand and govern all of society so i don't think have to but I do think that something nice about what he's saying is that he I, – I personally wouldn't get away with the mode of production 
formula entirely, but it questions the discreteness of them, right? And so historical modes of production have these dynamics which have the potential to be critical foundations to the next social formation. And so just as people say all the time without, you know, you don't get enough expansion of this in a lot of theory, but people will say all the time that, like you're saying, capitalist society contains seeds of socialism. It then is not necessarily teleological to say that feudalism contained uh, what we'd now consider capitalist elements under a different overall social process. So, I mean, I don't know what Banaji would say, but I would say there are built into human sociality even precursors of communist uh, society and 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 in capitalism in capitalist civil society you see the the seeds of of communist uh, production whether you would even consider that a mode of production or not a whole different debate but um, yeah yeah but I mean if we're really gonna extrapolate this then we have some really interesting things that we're going to have to square with a communist mode of production. Like to what extent does wage labor present itself in a communist mode of production? I'm, you know, like there's two ways of thinking about this, that in that there will be forms of wage labor that point towards communism. Um, or that, you know, I don't know, some more kind of bong rippy way of looking at this, maybe a little more left com or, or post Marxist that like, well, that's true within modes of production, but communism isn't a mode of production. It's not a society. It's the end of society. <laughs> I think that um, you do see Marx in, Ga- in Gotha, right? He's talking about how a lower stage of communism in which you are, you know, you put in an hour of work and you get an hour of work's goods back, right? And obviously that would be a massive expansion in terms of everyone's access to the social stock of goods right but that it is a in a sense it is taking capitalism's bullshit seriously about freedom of labor and and stuff like that and so you know bourgeois right no longer divided against itself you know and so i i think that maybe wage labor wouldn't take place in a early communistic society, but you'd have those quote unquote birthmarks of capitalist production just because that's the that's the foundation and and you can't skip, you know, to to all of a sudden we've got this new way of living that has no basis in the old way of living. I mean, it didn't happen from it didn't happen from antiquity to feudalism. It didn't happen from feudalism to capitalism. It it's just you know within within circulation of goods itself, there needs to be some social level process in which the way we conduct production and distribution is is actually changed and it can't just be imposed by political will. <clears throat> yeah, so this is where he gets away from the Marxist the nominal like a lot of nominally Marxist stuff in a big way is this allows him to avoid an obsession with, you know, the correct form uh, of you know what's going to be the atom of communist society and what's going to be its relation of production. You know, I have a lot of respect for people that 
you know, really took counsel seriously or something, or they're trying to find the next big thing, the new form of democracy, the new, you know, communistic form of production. But, you know, what's overwhelming is that, like, what matters is, is you know, how the overall society is going to shake out, too. Like, and, like, how, like, there could be more than one way of doing production, you know, for instance, that would fit into, you know, like a classless society, you know, free association of producers. So, I, I can definitely see the, you know, how it makes sense to kind of like maybe check out this sort of like broad and in some cases like Stalin derived periodization, right? Like he goes, he goes hard against mustache man in the early part of this essay um, for kind of setting the true, like the tradition in this direction or whatever. But, you know, he also pushes, he really seems to almost pokes post Marxist in the sense that like he kind of abandons maybe the more like optimistic, like implicit teleological elements in Marx, the kind of Hegelian like belief in like the expansion of freedom through history right like that's gone and you just kind of have like different forms of like exploitation um that almost can't even be compared against each other because each system has its own like internal like logic and dynamics right well this is just baseline structuralist critical theory this was you know for the milieu that he's writing in that's that's boilerplate that's already kind of a sum that's already the assumption you know i don't like althusser but every so often Althusserians become analytical Marxists, or they say things that are exactly what, you know, analytical Marxists say. This is one of those times. I love that. I love that. I, I gotta say, on I do think some of the railing against teleology that goes in theory tends to, tends to not really define what it means by teleology or telos, because, and this is actually something in uh, the wonderful C. Derek Varn um, Amazon review of uh, Banaji's book that I, I thought was really insightful, which is that saying something like capitalist development has an internal logic that plays out logically over history and in history isn't really the same thing as saying history has some literal metaphysical telos. And so some of the... Some of the stuff railing against teleology, I'm not even sure this applies to Banaji per se. But when no, people yeah, go this, against, it's not really in here. When people go against really teleology in this, in this hardcore way, I tend to think like, okay, explain what's wrong about the telos that you're targeting. You know what? What? What actually? You know, are you talking about people who are saying there is a metaphysical inclination towards freedom, or maybe? Somebody thinks that there's something in human species labor or in production or in sociality or so something that exists that would inform the historical process without being a universal world spirit guiding light. Well, th that's what's important about not just having a critical project and then when it comes to your positive analysis, you have to rely on this Hegelian placeholder. This is why, Grant, sometimes in our conversations about critique of political economy versus, you know, doing something with the field that Marx was like, yeah, he was, he was like critiquing it, but in his own way, he was making like not just a contribution to the critique. But he was like reforming the discipline in a way that you could do 
good Marxian political economy. Not that that's what most people are going to do, of course. And I know that might not be how he talked, but Marx clearly at a certain point wants to do science. And the reason is he doesn't want to be a Hegelian. He doesn't want to just, you know, rely on this like schematic formulation that will unfold. Like he sees that, he understands it. And he can see where that that those like heuristics could apply in a way. But, you know, if you've ever, you know, just tried to throw the dialectic on this stuff, the pattern recognition parts of your brain go nuts and you could see it all over the place. So, you know, the good money is trying to figure out the so-called laws of motion of society, see what their tendencies are, which way that they push and how that is likely to develop. And that's what Banaji ends up doing with this like commodity feudalism model, which is fucking, this is fascinating. He, he makes a fascinating set of arguments. I don't even know where to start where You know, I've never heard a smart person take the simple commodity production part of capital as, like, a literal thing that existed in history. Aside from Engels. Engels is smart. Um, And Engels kind of saw it that way. But, you know, for the most part, I thought that there was just, like, a Stalinist, like, misreading. The way that Banaji uses it is to talk about, actually, a form of feudalism (laughs) and a form of, like... commodity-producing feudalism that obeys non-capitalist rules of reproduction, essentially. Um, And the the way that the internal logic of feudalism, like, and he has something that, you know, you could think of it as, I don't know, like like a dimensional sort of, like, development. Like, there is a sort of, like, it's, you know, it could go back and forth, but there is, like, a scale of development that feudalism can go by in his like in his like broader like way of analyzing feudalism um like you know there's that sort of like high farming thing then there's this like the second second serfdom uh that ends up more brutal but in his view it's not because it's more backwards that it becomes more brutal it's because it's approaching its purest form <laughs> and like, it's just a fascinating fucking argument. Well, yeah, I mean, so he's. Ba- I think he's basically saying in that section that the dynamic strive, because he talks a lot about, like, the way that, like, the lords or the people who own the land did their accounting. And he does this to illustrate that they weren't, they weren't basically seeking, you know, um, in orders of multiples in, in terms of growth. Like, it was, they were basically just, they were they were basically taking from the surpluses for their own personal consumption, as opposed to you know reinvestment or like expanding their operations you know to some indefinite point, as happens with firms under capitalism, right? So I guess like that's kind of the key difference is like what what is in what way like because I think that's why I, he probably looks to like mercantilism in a way as being laying the groundwork for everything because. You basically have like a market for which to per like produce all this stuff, which is I think why he says like in the um, the second feudalism, I think isn't it by that point kind of formed in response to like this kind of growing like European market, and then like it basically becomes like more backwards, 
I forget I forget how I forget how that section goes. Yeah, I'm just tempted to start reading here. Um there's just so much there's so fucking much. There's so many like really good takes here that are just so counterintuitive if you're familiar with the Marxist literature. Like uh something I don't know. This is sort of a, a sidebar, but and it, we we started to get into it before, but like Slavery, like the global, like the global market was like a feudal, like a feudal process of expansion and the colonies that it set up were capitalist because they produced surplus value like through slavery. But the actual like kingdoms that like settled those colonies were a sort of commodity feudalism or or mercantile feudalism. Like, you know, not... That's not, like, a read that you get very often, or that, like, what people call the third world is actually, like, a hybrid of, like, two very different modes of production. Like, you know, just, like, shoving them together and not really looking at the differences. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't studied, the, like, the debates, of, like, around this period very much. Like, I haven't really looked that closely at, like, Brenner or, you know, anybody else who's, like theorized i mean i've looked a little bit into the brenner debates and stuff like that but i haven't i'm not as familiar with like the the kind of that kind of transitional period um but it i mean it so maybe it doesn't read as as novelty as novel to me because i don't have as much to compare it against but yeah i guess we'd i I feel like the more historical section we'd probably have to break down like in closer detail yeah if you've never read this thing like take a week or a month to read it because it's good but it's um he writes like a Brenner, right? You know, the half paragraphs. I think um I think there's something in this that kind of denies the Brenner thesis of you know, the historical specificity of capitalism and it's arising out of certain places on earth and and things like that. Um but I think that's something that gets elaborated more in his other work and that we're just seeing hints of here. So it's not something I can totally comment on, but it does seem like it does seem like this is a different interpretation of the rise of capitalism than Brenner or Woods would put forward. Yeah, what it has in common is Basically, it's bracketing off of a bunch of the Marxist tradition as being, you know, yeah, they tried, but uh, seriously, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. <clears throat> it's kind of funny, yeah. Kautsky and Lenin end up getting, like, the shout-outs here. Well, honestly, um, Kautsky and Lenin had a very interesting debate in, in general. It's it, It's crazy to me how... Kautsky, even among, you know, so-called neo-Kautskyists or whatever, Kautsky after X date is used as this cudgel of like, you know, revisionism or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's the joke of neo-Kautskyism, right? Is that they know 
that Kautsky basically made Lenin, and they still fucking hate him. And and it's like, it's just interesting, like, oh, and then his brains got abducted by aliens, and thought that was totally discontinuous with his old thought appeared in his mind. And it's like, it's I, I once said on our Twitter, actually, I said something about, like, yeah, Lenin and Kautsky had an interesting debate. I think they both, both made good points. And I got a seven tweet reply thread about how it was dangerous and reactionary to concede that Kautsky made any points in his debate with Lenin. <laughs> it was like a really, really like making people type paragraphs moment that I enjoyed. But yeah, there's, there's a weird, it, I, I always like when I see people talk about like the Lenin Kautsky debates in a, just a kind of objective way rather than being obviously, partisans jake are you still trying to find the same shit because i'm still trying to find the same shit uh here's maybe one uh let's let's see if this because i usually i usually feel like i'm getting to the spot but then i I just keep going um let's see in other words the feudal enterprise in the early epoch of so-called classical feudalism crystallized or acquired its truly classical form uh, with a labor process reducing the sector of peasant uh, production to a preserve of simple reproduction only sporadically and then only rarely in its pure form in the grain exporting countries of the quote second serfdom the predominant form of feudal enterprise was the developed form the primitivist and barbarity of their social relations were an expression of the maturity of feudal relations of production of their relative purity uh, the clue to this contrast lies in the origins of the second serfdom uh, when the countries of Eastern Europe plunged, plunged into this epoch, a world market was already in the process of formation. Merchant capital had already de- established an important and expanding grain trade, which, in the course of the 14th century, was progressively integrating the Baltic into a European division of labor. Marx himself and most later Marxists assumed, as a matter of course, that feudalism evolved by a simple progression from labor services to monetary payments through an intermediate form of rent in kind. But if, in order to explain the particular connection between the purity of the second serfdom and its location in an emerging world market, we return to the... Okay, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> the early patriarchal year of the Carolingian pair. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's, that's, the, that's the thing, yeah. Like, he, su- he eventually sums up what he's saying. Um, let's see. Like, that payments in kind... Okay, so... Payments in kind are like an early version of, you know, wage labor. I mean, probably won't say it like that, but that's it. And that the, the significance of this fact is enormous. It suggests that not only did the crystallization of feudal relations of production find only its true and widespread expression in the second serfdom, i.e. the more backwards eastern periphery of Europe, but the feudal estate only crystallized, i.e. acquired its developed adequate form, not in the relative isolation of Europe cut off from markets, and forced to depend on local production, but precisely when the estate itself assumed the character of a commodity-producing enterprise. Yeah, that sounds extremely counterintuitive. Um, yeah. Now that it's phrased that way, because it's like, I mean, well, under what period, so they, I guess these forms, like, what does it mean for them to crystallize exactly? Like, It means to acquire its developed, quote, adequate form. I mean, but in what does that even mean, though? <laughs> well, you know, like why? Well, in other words, like why would it? Was it less feudalistic? Like I guess two hundred years ago, when things were more loosey goosey. I mean, like I mean, I, I guess it depends on how you're defining feudalism, then, right? 
Yeah. You know, because, I mean, fuelism is, I guess, the only form of, of production where people are growing their own food and shit, right? So. Well, it, it looks like to answer this question, we're going to have to actually get into what makes second serfdom different than, you know, high farming. Um, and, you know, his, like, periodization of feudalism. We have to go back and see, remember what high farming was. Just take a toke. Just take a toke and plant some seeds, man. Yeah, yeah, we're go- yeah, we're going back to the earth, man. We're starting up, starting up something upstate. Got, 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 got a little land. Uh, by the way, I'm lo- I, I, I just word searched high farming, and it's it's actually never clearly defined. It's just the period of uh, uh, 1230, and then in Poland in 1600. So, I guess okay, cool. I I really I really recommend to people Mark Block Feudal Society Volume One and Two. I mean, it's a pretty solid. Sounds like a lot. It's a solid introduction to feudalism. I I've read it. I want to read it again. Read it closer. Um, feudalism is interesting, and I feel like we don't we don't spend enough time in the weeds in, in of history as Marxists. I mean, I I think for me, you know, I actually. I don't know how how you both related to feudal history growing up, but I remember when I was first getting interested in history, it was antiquity and early feudalism, uh, especially antiquity. I mean, I remember I would like watch the History Channel before it became Pawn Stars twenty four seven, and I was like, "Shit, man! Hannibal should have won the Second Punic War. What the fuck?" Carthage rules. Rome sucks. Like I had all these opinions about antique history that I think um, having a Marxian perspective actually lets you look back at this history and have a, a more interesting experience of it. You know, just to process like, oh, this is humanity was at this point in terms of society and and social formations, um, and to and I think that the slave versus citizen dynamic of antiquity is under theorized as well like figuring out exactly how that works um and and so yeah i mean myself included i'm not criticizing anybody but i i would just love to get more in the weeds of pre-capitalist societies i mean i'm pretty interested in ancient shit and i'm pretty interested in modern shit but i didn't give a fuck about feudalism i I don't know. Yeah, no, there yeah, was I saw, definitely. I saw the I saw the Monty Python movie. I know how it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely no that that makes sense though. I definitely feel like a lot of my interest was in antiquity and classical civilizations. Like I said, Carthage. I was a stan, and then you kind of just get told like, well, feudalism happened, and then the Enlightenment. So. Right, the Dark Ages. It's, it's interesting because that was a whole ass period of human history that mattered. That well, it's also like, at least when I was a kid, it's like I don't even I don't read about any of that Ren fair shit. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I don't read about some. I want to read some cool samurai, the cool feudalism. Well, you know? if you think about it, like 
the reason that, you know, we don't learn that much about that age is because the culture that we're descended from had a shitty time during that age and all the cool shit was somewhere else, more or less. And I mean, I know I'm, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. There are, you know, interesting things here and there with the church fathers or something. But like the real action is going on in like the Islamic golden age. So I want to pull one last thing from the end here where he talks about some of the implications of this about like the sort of integration of like the periphery into like capitalist relations or whatever. Okay. Um, So he goes, uh, let's see. In these peasant nations, capital followed a less obvious or more deceptive trajectory. As it happens, uh, let's see. Um, uh, As it happens, it was in a note to one of Wakefield's comments on the depressed condition of the Irish peasantry that Marx summed up this fundamental fact. He wrote, quote, in this case, profit is called rent, just as it is called interest when, for example, as in India, the worker, although nominally independent, works with advances he receives from the capitalist and has to hand over all the surplus value to the capitalist. That's from, I guess, theories of surplus value. By worker, Marx meant, of course, the peasant himself, and by capitalist, the moneyed bourgeoisie of moneylenders and merchants, through whom the small producer was brought into relation with the market. In 1859, Marx already implied that this relation was basically a capitalist one, but then with some uncertainty. Referring to the advanced system, he wrote, quote, in these cases, however, money function only in the familiar forms of means of purchase and therefore requires no new definition. But he added, quote, of course, capital is too advanced in the form of money, and it is possible that the money advance is capital advanced, end quote. Um, And let's see. Uh, that is to say, the, the the advance which a money lender makes to a peasant is an advance of capital in the form of an advance of a certain sum of money or the material elements of circulating capital, e.g. seed, and thus bears the deceptive or illusory appearance of a pure loan. He seems to, I guess, privilege like finance a little more in this analysis and that he points out how the integration of the periphery may have just been like, you know, you have cash at hand, you want to invest, so you integrate like these outward um, unsubsumed modes of production laterally and get like an immediate return and like from investment that way than you would maybe in like more intensive like relative surplus value like forms of accumulation. Um, And then he basically talks about how um, a lot of the struggles of the period weren't against the colonial state, but against like um, basically against uh, the moneyed bourgeoisie, like in, in these kind of like, periphery areas um actually i think i have like more concrete things to say about his discussion of quote slavery quote (laughs) which is how he refers to it because he basically argues that all that stuff was capitalist um uh but i kind of wanted to throw back to our discussion of feudalism because i was waiting to find like a satisfying quote and i think i found one so Taking the feudal epoch as a whole, the peasant holdings thus figured in two determinate forms and functions, as small peasant farms capable of generating a more or less substantial surplus over the peasants' immediate requirements of consumption, and as subsistence plots adapted to the reproduction of labor power. If we now ask which of these forms constituted the classical or fully developed structure of the feudal enterprise, the answer should not be difficult. The enterprise only crystallized, that is, acquired its classical structure when the ratio of the peasants necessary to surplus labor time was directly reflected in the distribution of arable, I guess arable land, between uh, domain and peasant holding, between the lord's holding and peasant holding. 
In other words, the form of organization of the labor process specific to the feudal mode of production in its developed form would be one which permitted the Lord to assert complete control over the labor process itself, in which the peasant holdings assumed the form of and functioned as a sector of simple reproduction. Um, the only... In, uh, let's see, see. Within the framework of this type of economy, and regardless of the structure of the labor process, the production of wealth was subordinated to habits of generosity, display, and consumption. Uh, Perrin maintained that in the patriarchal organization of the big estates, the notion of profits in the sense of value, which expands itself, was utterly alien. As we know, the only investments in which an enterprise ever undertook were those which were strictly necessary for the requirements of simple reproduction, and mainly the periodic reconstitution of manorial livestock. In this sense, the Lord's consumption constituted the only motor force of expansion in the feudal economy. So, okay, but wait a second. Like, why does it particular if if all that matters is, I guess, is like the Lord, the Lord's um, consumption, personal con- right? He's he's basically taking surplus for his personal consumption, and there's upper end limits with that within feudalism because there's a limited market from which he can actually purchase, you know, goods for his own individual consumption and, you know, throwing parties and shit like that, right? If that, like, why does it matter then whether the peasant is brought down to, like, the minimum subsistence, like, cost of reproduction in their own, like, personal lands? Like, like isn't, how, do, how is that, how does that fit into, like, the logic of this system? Like, what, how does that make it more crystallized than, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, why is one of those more pure than the other? Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're saying it's more pure, like from a capitalist standpoint, right? Because they've been, but it, it's like the logic of I thought, like the logic of feudalism was like different. I think it's that it. I think to an extent, it's that it doesn't matter how much surplus a peasant gets back in, in a certain sense. In in the beginning of the peasant mode of production section on page 32 here he says that the historical roots of all varied forms of simple commodity production lie in the patriarchal subsistence mode of production based on small-scale parcelized property and the exploitation of family labor this connection is important because when simple commodity production arises the economic logic of the more archaic patriarchal enterprise continues to dominate this form of production The chief expression of this fact is that products are sold without regard to price of production. According to Marx, the small present operating in this mode regards the expenditure of labor as the indispensable prerequisite for the labor product, which is the thing that interests him above all. But as regards surplus labor, after deducting the necessary labor, it is evidently realized in the surplus product, and as soon as he can sell the latter or use it for himself, he looks upon it as something that cost him nothing, because it cost him no materialized labor. Even a sale below value and the capitalist price of production still appears to him as a profit. And so I guess like to simplify that, maybe it's it's that there's not that because feudalism is 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 this regional localized even familial mode of production that there's not always as much a logic to it but maybe i'm butchering that point is he saying that a mode of production is crystallized when like the oppressed like class as class is reduced to like its minimal subsistence level is that what he's no, saying I, I think he's saying there's something about the logic of feudalism that is 
best illustrated by this more subjugated, brutal form. It's like saying, it's like looking at the factories in Manchester and being able to more clearly see the basic dynamics at work of cat of capitalism yeah and and right, and right, so right, right. yeah angles to make an analogy and, between modes of production exactly angles goes to see the condition of the working class in england and goes holy fuck and and so when you look at feudalism there are certain moments in feudalism that perhaps illustrate best that you've got this this political rule of of basically a a mafia running a protection racket for all of your surplus what but what jake is asking is like a good question why is it this you know commodity production version of feudalism that is the most crystallized feudal form why does that count it 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 doesn't seem to square with some of the other stuff he's saying is this is what's weird to me well i don't i, don't, I think it seems consistent seems consistent with himself I don't even know if I agree with this, but off the top of my head, I would say that the most – maybe you could say the most crystallized feudalism is the feudalism that contains the kernels of the next mode of production exactly because it reveals what about feudalism was dynamic and developing and pushing things forward towards capitalism unintentionally and unteleologically, but nonetheless – that's just me bull. That's just me yeah, maybe, bullshitting and, and and trying to make it sound. No, nice, I, see, I see what you're saying. Well, I think I think the the thing that's important here is that so much of feudalism just does have money, and it does have like stuff that looks a lot like commodity production. I mean, he just calls it commodity production, and like <clears throat> a lot of like a lot of history is hard to understand with the other way of looking at this where, Oh, it's got money. Oh, this that's capitalism. Like, like, I think it might be like something of a troll move to say that commodity production feudalism is the most feudalist, <laughs> the most feudal, but all the same, I think he believes it just like I, you know, I think he lays out the logic maybe a little better for why he thinks, um, you know, the, the colonizing countries in slavery were feudal, but the colonies themselves were capitalist. That's deep. All right. Or uh, should we uh, bring this in for a landing yes. here? Yeah, I guess. Tis a late read... Monday evening. <laughs> it's true. I, just, I wanted to read something great. I wanted to read something great about his, uh, let's see. Uh, okay. What what was it? Yeah, we can do a quote. All right, all right. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to like. I'm saying we have to end the right this second, but let's you yeah, know. Let's, let's wind try and... it down. I get it. Yeah. This is when he's dunking on like Laclau and Frank and this whole like section of Marxists. Um, he's he's talking about this formal problematic of quote characterization, which was an extrapolation of like you know a particular relation of exploitation towards a whole mode of production. In all phases of its evolution, the structure of world eh, the structure of world economy posits only one element of explanation, namely the demands of capital reproduction. From this it follows that modes of production other than capital which coexist within the structure of that economy 
figure only as specific forms of subjugation of labor perpetuated over time by the requirements of industrial accumulation. These are modes of production, quote-unquote, deprived of their own laws of motion, vegetating on the periphery of an industrializing Europe like a vast reserve of labor power periodically called into action for the spasmatic expansions of metropolitan capital. For purposes of propaganda, it would be entirely adequate to relate the existence of slavery in the cotton plantations to the requirements of the English textile industry or the intensified exploitation of serf labor in the grain exporting nations of Eastern Europe to the fact that capital requires a large volume of grain at low prices. But Marx was aware that scientific inquiry, in, scientific inquiry was an entirely different sort of exercise to a propagandistic tract, and it was this awareness that initially distinguished Marxism from Ricardian and petty bourgeois socialism. This is coming out like, yeah, I don't know. Right, yeah, no, and I mean, Marx doesn't make these... You, you you can't look in Marx and find the answer to some question in this rigid theoretical scheme way of like, oh, what was going on in the the southern United States? Like, explain to me exactly what the mode of production was there. And I don't think that's from lack of having thought about it. I think that's from the fact that these things are messy. And the fact that, you know, and this is something uh, Banaji is really willing to point us towards, which is that production, while it does follow some of these general lines, you know, even if you think about slavery and you can blame the global mode of production there are local incentives and local incentives might even contradict general social development or the reproduction of capital or stuff like that. And within specific modes of production, within specific social formations, you're going to find countervailing tendencies. You're going to find things that contradict the, the general rule, but then are part of it in a way. And so I think in general, this this text does a really good job of asking us to question not modes of production, but the idea that a mode of production is going to be so complete rather than chaotic and and, uh, contradictory. And having local components which edge against the global component and and which reflect pre-existing modes of production which ex- which not just that though not just as hangovers but also reflect how pre-existing modes of production adapt to current modes of production and how you know you can have a mode of production with a general rule to it and then different countervailing populations will try to reproduce their social existence through other means. And so it's it's just a very complicated thing when you when you have world systems at play. Did it that did that make a did that make a lick of sense? No, I've been laying on the no, Trump no, no, wine. It, it it makes sense. It makes sense, but I think that he is a lip he's a bit more lawful 
than I think we're used to for a Marxist that has this much of a critical dimension. And I think that works in his favor. Like Jake is saying, like, you know, it's maybe questionable some of the decision he makes for, you know, how, you know, what's the crystallized form. But there's this, I don't know, there's another passage here, and I promise it'll be the last one I read, where, like, he says, feudal production, the feudal mode of production, both crystallize and decayed within the framework of expanding market relations. The feudal estate both acquired its classical, fully developed structure, and reached its inherent limits as a commodity-producing enterprise. By contrast to both forms of feudal production, the slave, print, the slave plantations, normally regarded as pre-capitalists, disintegrated by an entirely different process, not immediately connected with the expanding volume of exchanges in whose vortex they were, in fact, born as centers of commercial speculation. That, um... I don't know, there's just an, like, an entire way of doing Marxist history that attempted to just extrapolate from the, you know, the naked facts of what kind of exploitation was going on that in his view, you know, really points you in the wrong direction and that you don't need to abandon the idea of discovering the laws of motion of modes of production in order to get around this. It's a very like lowercase Marxist point. It's not a cap. It's not a capital M Marxist point, but it's also not a post Marxist point where you, you abandon law of trying to find the laws of motion. I, I, and I've definitely said to people before, like, in order to illustrate certain points about capitalism, I've said, like, if you look, if you want to understand feudalism, I mean, we immediately look at the class structure. We immediately, when we when we want to understand how, you know, you bring up feudalism in a in a high school history class, and you get that little chart of here are the knights, here are the landlords, here are the peasants at the bottom, all of that. Yeah, and so you know, I tell I just tell people, okay, apply that to now, and, and that has some use to it, but. Um, historical periods and social formations i think to really understand them you need to do real historical work and you need to really understand what happened from point a to point b in a way that i mean marx and angles themselves talked about materialism not being a excuse to not look into the specific history of a period and it, it's a it's it's something they said, not something my many followers abided by, but um, well, well, us included, right? This is why we're so lost. So we're like, what the fuck is this? I don't know anything about this. I'm a Marxist. Why would I know anything about history? There's something about Marxism that uh, one of one of the worst things it does to Marx thought, I suppose, is it generalizes from Marx's thought so much that it, it just it just says we're not going to do historical specificity. And Marx was so, you know, he, even when you look at stuff like the 18th Rumer, so many of his theories, he explicated them 
by going, let's do like, like it's, it's about doing historical analysis in order to prove or, or not to prove per se, but to, to flesh out theory rather than the specifics kind of later falling in line with the general abstractions. I mean, there, yes, but you know, Marx was a communist. I think he was kind of he was he was interested in basically like you know constructing a theoretical system that would enable like the working class to you know inaugural like a liberated like post-capitalist society so i feel like a lot of these questions about like how modes of production operated like in antiquity versus feudalism blah 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 blah. i mean it's interesting but i don't know if you're gonna find like the master key to any of this stuff inside of any of that you know what i'm saying not to say that it's not well, worth knowing I, I you're think studying that if you if you really look at antiquity and feudalism from a marxian perspective you're going to find certain precursors to the current day and, and, and human commonalities that point towards socialism. And, and I think that you're I'm not saying don't say this. I'm just trying to say like why he, maybe he didn't go down like a historical rabbit hole and was kind of concentrated on like contemporary, like capitalist well, yeah, relations. No, but, but, like no, the thing no, is he, he, he looked did, at he them did know quite a bit about history. And, and not only like, that, I'm not saying not he didn't, only that, I mean, but, those that ex I guess my real point is that that explication of historical capitalist relations was was highly specific and it was empirical. There's so much there's so much theorizing that goes on today that has really no connection to empirically what's going on. Like there's no analysis of where the working class is at, what's going on, what's going on in society. It's mostly based on reconfirming kind of pre-existing assumptions that the left has about what's going on, you know, like, and a lot of Marxism today is honestly just taking MSNBC talking points and adding the words material conditions. You know, you just, right. you just take, no, it's not. I mean, like, it is on Twitter. But, I mean, but I, I, don't, I, I think don't know. you get plenty of like, people. This, this when guy's you look contemporary. At, you know, you but, look at people but, like, oh, you know, the rise of, you know, Trump even, is that's a strong, fascist that's like, or that's whatever. Like, I mean, that's, this is Twitter. This you're just doing Twitter. I mean, yeah, you can find like the dumbest, worst possible versions of people. I don't know. But about even that. if you got to even, no, no, yeah, you can do that all the time on Twitter. That's what Twitter's for. But even if you find some of the better ones, they still, make these kind of mistakes that Banaji is is getting at. And, you know, Jake makes a point here that, you know, Marx was kind of busy trying to, you know, ha- like trying to like clarify world communist revolution and, you know, didn't focus so much on whether mode of production meant, you know, relations of exploitation or to the, to the totality or whatever. And so, you know, he kind of fudged between those two usages and, and, you know, Banaji is probably going to have a hard time, you know, inspiring people to revolt with, with this article. Um, <laughs> you know, but apparently he actually is kind of involved in shit no, in no, India. He, so. he actually is, but I, you, you know, that this isn't the, the paper that he shows to people to get them sure. to, you know, join the right. struggle. Like, but I bet you could probably look at like some of like I don't know all the different telegrams and and notes that Marx and Engels are sending back and forth and find some stuff like, hey, did you see this shit in the Economist? Like, what's going on in they're India right now? You know that's what I mean? One hundred percent what they're like. And the thing, the problem with you know Marxist like pamphlet brain is is 
is twofold. You know, yeah, it's just like kind of dumbed down, but it's also wrong. Like a lot of it's just wrong. A lot of it's just stapling like rationalistic abstractions onto history in a way that's like that. You know, Banaji doesn't want to get rid of our ability to try to like penetrate the essence of things beyond appearances because there's a basic rationalism in Marxism that like that, you know, is usually dismissed as I mean, it's usually dismissed because of the fucking way that, you know, you have this like scholastic Stalinist kind of like turgid death cult thing that comes out of it. But you still should be able to like use some of like the categories or at least the like ways of understanding things that Marx did to do analysis or like, you know, I don't know, like you still can do that in a productive way. You don't have to have fucking pamphlet brain to do this. And maybe if you get like, if you do this really good, if you do this well enough and maybe Banaji's the guy, right? Maybe Banaji does that his like, you know, big, you know, wizard book about it. Actually, this is rather clinical. So it's a big bow tie book about it, right? It's half wizard, half bow tie. Okay. And then, you know, maybe write some pamphlets about it. Like afterwards, I don't know. Like, I don't know if Banaji's the guy that, that, you know, does that, but I appreciate, I appreciate his half wizard, half bow tie thing here. Like it's a, it's a position that not a lot of people can strike well is to say, Hey, um, this was supposed to be historically relative and we, and you know, to be critical of like trans historical stuff while still trying to generalize about different periods. That's just, that's a nice sweet spot. So as little as I still understand this, I like it. That's it for this week. Um, I guess I will be posting this Monday night before Super Tuesday. You know, so if you live in one of the Super Tuesday states and you're listening to this right now, um... And it's still Super Tuesday, or you're listening to it right after we posted it, maybe. I don't know. But either way, if there's time, you know what to do. You know what's right. You know, I'm sure there's listeners who have, you know, varying opinions on electoralism or how useful it is or whatever, but come on, just do it. All right, let's let's... Let's see what happens. Even if you're opposed to electoralism, you don't want to jump into it. Um, and you're like a Patreon supporter of the show. I got bad news for you, buddy. Because uh, some of the money I get from the Patreon goes straight to the Bernie campaign. So uh, you're supporting electoralism, uh, whether you like it or not. So yeah, if you haven't voted early, personally, if I vote... I like to use the uh, mail-in one. Some people don't trust it, but I live in fucking Florida, so you know we can't trust. I don't trust it any. You can't trust it anywhere, you know. I'm sure there's still fucking boxes of ballots from 2000 election in a swamp somewhere. If you want to get hold of us, you can find us on any number of social media outlets. I think we're on Insta, we're on Twitter, we got a Facebook. You can email us at uh, 
swampsidejats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show and at the same time indirectly support Bernie Sanders, <laughs> you can uh, uh, donate to the Patreon or, you know, just um, tell some people about the show. That helps too, you know. Uh, yeah. All right. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>